welcome to the comics course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's Graphical Literature and Society and History, our English Department 209, better known as the comics course. I am Professor Hamby. You can find me on Twitter as Prof Hamby. And our website is comicscourse.org. I'll be doing some updates to it tonight for a reading list as well as some general content. And you can find us available on just about every platform at comicscourse.captivate.fm. Now, one platform you will not find us on is Spotify. Now, Spotify was giving me a little bit of grief about the podcast anyway, and I've decided, in the light of them continuing to support Joe Rogan, and yes, I am not happy with the fact that his last name is my first, um... Uh, you know, I actually <clears throat> had some fuckwit at one point ask me if, like, I was named after Joe Rogan. And I'm like, dudes, I'm closing on 50. I'm older than him. I was born before he was born. Certainly before he became famous. Are you really that stupid? But they were a fan of Joe Rogan, so they probably are really that stupid. Seriously asked that? Yes, like, I was. Like, in 100% seriousness. Mm -hmm. Like, a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Right, and when I pointed out to them that I would have been born decades before he became famous, and I might be older than him, I'm not sure about his actual age, but certainly I was born decades before he became famous, um, they just looked at me and went, oh, like that's yeah. A, like, that's oh. a concept they had trouble understanding. L like, they had to think about it. <laughs> so, I mean, these are the kinds of fuckwits he, you know, attracts. You know, the kind of people that want to use horse dewormers instead of modern medicine. Now, I'm going to comment on this, folks. The vaccine? Get it. It's not going to give you syphilis. It's not going to give you access to Microsoft's you know, secret Wi-Fi network. You want to know why? Why? It won't give us a password. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> what it will do is shove some RNA bits into your system that basically are the same stuff that gets left behind after you successfully fight off COVID and gives your body a fighting chance to fight off COVID. That's it. Get over it. So anyway, uh, because Spotify... Spot-a-cat. Spotify has chosen to promote uh, health misinformation from somebody who I don't know a whole lot about. I understand that he said some fairly misogynistic things, and somebody told me he said racist things, but I don't know the details. But anybody who's on the Nazi spectrum, uh, I I'm okay with telling their hosting organization to go drown themselves in a bathtub of, well, I'm not going to finish saying that. That would qualify as suggesting harm to somebody. So anyway, I'll tell them to get lost. I don't want any part of them. I was going to say bathtub of razor blades, but that might be a kind of gruesome image for some people. But not as gruesome as the book we're going to talk about today, because the book we're going to talk about today is real. And it is Mouse, the winner of a Pulitzer Prize by Art Spiegelman, now, I brought it up here because uh, I, most of the comics I read are digital these days, so I brought it up to look at, and what was it you said to me when I brought it up? Uh, I asked if the symbol of the cat meant Nazis, and then the mouses were Jews, because cat and mouse. And you got it. 
That is exactly it. Now, Spiegelman has said that the art of the cartoonist is to, with minimal effort on the part of the reader, ascertain the truth of the things. In other words, to distill things to their purest form and present them. And I think he does a good job of that here. Now, I have that. I'm going to talk about two things today, but most of the time it's going to be talk about Mouse itself. And then I'll mention briefly the physical book you're flipping through, which is Meta Mouse. It was compiled as a sort of companion to Mouse. If there's absolutely anything you ever wanted to know about Art Spiegelman or the process of making Mouse, um, it is in that book somewhere. So... First of all, I want to put this out here. For anybody who thinks that Spiegelman is some sort of artiste who's untouchable, I want to note that while his name is frequently associated with Mouse, he created another thing in the 1980s that had a huge impact on popular culture, at least for a few years, and it was Garbage Pail Kids. So there we go. Mouse and Garbage Pail Kids. There's some trivia for you. Sounds like such an innocent name compared to what Mouse is about. Well, and the Garbage Pail Kids were grotesque. They were a series of, like, trading cards and stickers with just completely grotesque, gross-out art. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it was very low culture. And I recently found out were relabeled in, like, the Australian market to the Garbage Gang, which doesn't really sound any better to me. But they're Australia. They have to be edgy. Right, so... To match their animals. To match their animals? Uh-huh. The animals aren't edgy. They're just sociopathic. They're just cold-blooded killers. So, Mouse, for those who don't know, it is a memoir. It heavily depicts the author's father telling of his life before and during World War II as a Jew that ended up in the internment camps. It is a very powerful work. It uses a framing device where the adult, Art Spiegelman, interviews his father about his past. And in those framing elements detail the difficult emotional conflicts between he, him and his father while going back to the story his father is telling about the difficulties of being a Jew during the Holocaust. It was originally written in serial increments and published in a magazine between 1980 and 91. It was compiled in two volumes, Mouse 1 and Mouse 2, and then combined into The Complete Mouse, uh, which is how it's generally sold today. Now, if you would like to buy a physical copy of it, which it only occurred to me the other day when I went to come find my copy of Meta Mouse, I assumed I had a physical hardback copy of Mouse. It turned out I didn't. And I went to buy it online, and you can't. It is sold out everywhere. Amazon is sold out. I'm sure publishers are racing to put it back into print right now. Um... Just to be clear, MetaMouse is not sold out. Mouse is. MetaMouse is only sold to a few psychotic people with obsessive-compulsive details for literary analysis. <clears throat> Me. But why is it sold out everywhere? Why are people, you, you know, going in droves? I even saw somebody from a comic book store, a guy who runs a comic book store who also sells graphic novels as a result, saying he's had lines of people in the store asking about buying Mouse. Well, it's because of people in Tennessee. But, oh God, what did Tennessee do this time? What would you think people from Tennessee would do with literature? Ban it! Now, I used the word fuckwits earlier. This continues to be an accurate term. 
So the school board in Tennessee voted unanimously to ban this book from an eighth grade reading list because of a couple of dams and a non-graphic suicide scene where a dead body is seen after a suicide. There's no blood, there's no gore, it's a tiny little thing, it's barely a few lines. Wait, so they want to ban a whole book documenting what happened to Jews during World War II, and that's what they banned it over? That's what they claimed. Now, I would like to propose an alternate possibility. That they looked at it and went, you know, I think those Nazis had it right. I'm from Tennessee. God damn those black people, those Jewish people, those those brown people, those kind of brown people, those maybe brown people. I don't know anybody who ain't like me. This book's about them. It'll poison little Johnny's head. It might make him think that people not like him are real people. We gotta ban this shit, motherfuckers! Ooh, it had damn in it. Little Johnny ain't never heard damn. I mean, the internet's all full of clean stuff about people wearing red hats and Jesus, right? I mean, I'm sure little Johnny's never seen any Rule 34 shit. <laughs> so, uh, these fuckwits decided to ban the book. Now, if I... I'm going to back up a little bit. So I was on Twitter earlier today. And a fellow I know was posting. And he said, My son thinks he's gotten one over on me. He stays up past his bedtime, pulls the blankets over his head, and reads with a flashlight. This is his form of rebelling. He thinks I don't know. Yet he hasn't figured out why his flashlight never runs out of batteries. <laughs> if you want a kid and this man this is a smart dad because the moment he tells his kid it's okay to read the kid's going to have a conflict because i'm sure that reading is all the more sweet for him because he feels like it's an act of rebellion or maybe the dad's stupid for thinking that's why his kid is reading it is well no 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 the kid isn't reading it because it's an act of rebellion. The kid's reading it because they want to read. But if their act of rebellion is reading, that's better than the kid trying to find some other way to rebel. I'm slightly concerned if something as innocent as reading is considered an act of rebellion, what the fuck goes on at that house? I think you're, you're missing the point. It's not that the reading itself is the rebellion, it's the staying up past bedtime that is. It just happens to be reading while doing it. Right. Okay. And the point is, the dad probably would put a stop to it if he was up playing video games after bedtime. But since it's reading, he's letting it go. And that's a smart man. Because if you want to encourage kids to do something, the best thing to do is to tell them not to do it. As an arbitrary rule. Now, if you don't want them to do something because it's stupid your best thing to do is to sit down and explain to them why it's stupid and get them on board with it. You know, because they're humans with brains. Uh -huh. Maybe small humans, maybe underdeveloped brains. Because that's part of the growing up process. Your brain grows and becomes capable of more sophisticated things as the person grows up. So if they're a little kid, their brain's not fully developed. But it does exist. And you can, in fact, reason with them. Right. It can be hard. And... You know, you're not going to want to burn them with unnecessary details, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, getting back to the point, before I got attacked by 
somebody's, you know, Freudian issues about, you know, households. Um, if I wanted kids to read mouth, mouse, the best thing on earth would be to get a school council to ban it. And of course, that's exactly what's happened. Sales have gone through the roof. People have started up GoFundMes to buy copies of Mouse and send them to Tennessee. Um, when, when will people learn, especially older adults, that telling kids not to do something is the exact thing that gets them to do it? Yeah. Look I, at any school environment. I, and this isn't a new phenomenon. Mark Twain, uh, back when he was alive, good old Samuel Clemens, had one of his books banned, and a reporter asked him about it, and he said something to the effect of, oh, good, I thought my bank account was a little light. I mean, because, of course, he knew that it being banned would drive up sales. This is what it does. These people are delusional. Um, and I, I feel like it's important to talk about Mouse because it is a great work of literature. In fact, it is, to my knowledge, the only graphic novel to ever win a Pulitzer Prize. Now, it's not the Pulitzer Prize for literature, it was the 90s, and they weren't ready for that yet. I'm still not sure that crowd is ready for that yet. No, but, it, but it was so deserving that even though they would not look at a graphic novel and give it a Pulitzer Prize for literature, they gave it a, Pulitzer, a special Pulitzer Prize because they knew it needed one. They knew they needed to recognize how important it was as a work. So, I mean, that's the... That's the social context of Mouse, that if people that are involved in sort of intelligentsia have been forced to acknowledge a work of graphic literature as high literature, and it is this. Um, now, I do want to talk a little bit about the presentations in it. You, when you saw the cover, immediately said what? Well, I saw the cat symbol on the front and mm -hmm. saw the two scared mouses, so my... Mice. Mice. Of course, it's a Nazi symbol behind the cat face, so I want to be clearly in this, cats are going to be represented as Nazis and mouses as Jews because cat Correct. and mouse scared. Although it's a little more broad than that. Now, here's one of the interesting things. So people are displayed by animals, uh, by, as animals by nationalities. Germans are cats, the Poles are pigs, Swiss are deers, the French are frogs... Well, in this work. Oh, okay. Americans are dogs. Um, the exception is that Jews are universally represented as mice, regardless of their nationality. And this is a very clear form of symbolism that the Jewish people, while they may be living in a country, they may have a German passport or an American passport or a French passport, it is their identity as Jews that are always seen as more important than their nationalism. And certainly was true then. I mean, oh, yeah, a Polish right. Jew, a German Jew, they're Jews, is how it was seen. Now, there's a couple of things to comment here. Uh, one, you asked about, you know, is this intentional symbolism that the cats are predatory mm -hmm. and therefore going after the Jewish mice? And yes, of course it is. Um, and, and some of the other things are fairly symbolic in their own right. You know, the poles as pigs. The poles are not shown in a horribly flattering light. And Art Spiegelman's father, uh, 
at least begins living in Poland as a Polish Jew at the beginning of the story. But I think part of the motivation also comes from a quote that Spiegelman gives partway through the book when he reprints this quote from a 1930s uh, article in Germany, a newspaper article, where they say, it starts off with, Mickey Mouse is the most miserable ideal ever revealed. And it goes on to basically analogize the Jews with rats, dirty vermin that run across the earth. And he calls the existence of this vermin in Germany the brutalization of the people. And it speaks to their ideas in a very clear way. And Spiegelman uses that. And he uses it across the board by not just representing the Jews as mice, as things that can be hunted and, and uh, uh, attacked, but the fact that all the people are filling these sort of inhuman roles. The Nazis are also inhuman. The Poles are inhuman. Even the French and Americans are represented by an inhuman role, although maybe not quite as viciously. Uh, and, and in fact, Spiegelman even kind of makes fun of it at one point in the book when he's talking to his wife, who's a French, uh, who's French, by birth, um, and saying she converted over, and he has a discussion with her about should he represent her as a frog, or should he draw her as a mouse, and she converted to Judaism. <laughs> if I were her, I would rather a mouse than a frog. Yes, I think I would too. So, I, I don't want to go through this bit by bit. Uh, you should read Mouse for yourself. I do want to point a few things out, though, that I think are worth noting. Uh, the framing device takes place in the 70s and 80s uh, when Spiegelman attempts to kind of connect with his father. At this point, his mother has been passed away a number of years. She committed suicide when he was 20. Spiegelman was 20. And his relationship with his father is very contentious. And his father is not easy to get along with. He has a very specific view about how he sees the world and how it should work. And during this, he wants to connect with his father on an important level, and he gets an idea to do this comic. Now, he'd done a previous comic about just a three-page thing, published in an independent uh, comic magazine, and it gave him a taste, and he decided he wanted to do more, and he wanted to learn the details about his father's life. So in this framing story that we keep coming back to, again, he doesn't draw himself as a human. He draws everybody in his family who are all Jewish as mice. And his father is remarried to this woman who named Mala, and they don't get along. And Mala is also a survivor of the internment camps, as are a number of people in their social circle. Because mm -hmm. frankly, a lot of people were in these camps. A lot. It's People debate the numbers because... And, okay, if anybody out there knows a Holocaust denier, he's like, well, we don't have paperwork for this supposed person. Well, that's because the Nazis burned their papers as they fled because they knew they had violated so many human rights. Yeah, um, it's not like they were going there thinking they did nothing wrong because that's why people were fleeing. Yeah. Now, we could have a legitimate debate that maybe some people's estimates of the Holocaust are excessively large. Maybe they're not as big as some people believe. But we know it was a big number. 
we know it was an absolutely shattering, destructive event prolonged over years that destroyed not just families or communities, but essentially nations of people. Um, and it was genocide. Mm-hmm. Now, part of what upsets me about attempts to ban books is that something like this is a, important to read because it's real. It's a memoir. It's not fiction. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you do have to ask yourself, could, is it all accurate and real? Well, it is being written by one person who has biases and may remember some things, not other things. They themselves admit they leave things out because they want to get to the heart of things. But he says that what he has put here is accurate and is as real as he can make it. And he does a few things as sort of tricks in the story to help it look that way. He exposes his own vulnerability. He puts in something that his dad asks him not to put in and even has him ask not to put it in in the story. And he wants to portray to people that this is absolutely real. Now, is it? We have to take his word for it. But I think it is. I get the vibe that it is. Now, is his father telling the truth all the time? That I'm not as sure about. His father, uh, uh, if we believe all the stories his father told him, his dad was a hustler. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he had to to survive. There's no doubt about it. Um, but either he's glamorized some aspects, and it's not terribly glamorous, so I'm not inclined to believe that there was much, if any, of that. Um, but a hustler may not be entirely forthcoming in all the facts. I mean, he may not have shared some things. I mean, certainly he portrays a very one-sided element about the woman he was seeing before he met Art Spiegelman's mom. Mm-hmm. So... You know, there, there is some reason to question his veracity. And we do start the story in the 1930s before the, the major rise of, Soviet, uh, 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 of Nazi Germany. And he's in a relationship with one woman. He leaves her after meeting Spiegelman's mother. And they quickly develop a strong relationship and get married. And as they are doing this... Uh, He moves to live with her, and he's marrying into a very wealthy family who use their money to help him start up his own factories. Now, the money becomes a relevant point of discussion for his character because we see in the frame story that he's very stingy. In fact, there's a story about this place he stays at where the cost of the propane, natural gas for the stove, is included with the rent. So he will light a burner on the stove and leave it on all day rather than expend the one hundredth of a penny it would cost to use another match to relight the stove when he needs it. And of course, using all that gas is incredibly wasteful just to keep it running. Jeez, that's psycho level of communication. And, And there are many things about that. In fact, Spiegelman at one point in the story says, I feel like I'm writing my father like one of those bad Jewish caricatures of the miser. And his wife, Mala, certainly accuses him of being that kind of miser. At one point, Spiegelman's wife tries to say, well, maybe it was, you know, the camps that did that to him. And Spiegelman objects and says, we know lots of people from the camps, and they don't act like that. But it it does bring up an interesting question about motivation, several questions about motivation. One, 
Did he, in fact, marry the mother for money? Um, if so, I think she, he did love her also, because there are plenty of indications that he did. You can have multiple motivations. Right. And you could also make an argument that his later behavior in the miserliness was because in the course of events of this book, everything is taken from him. Everything. His son, his wife, everything. And he desperately wants to hold on to what he considers his. And indeed, part of the conflict later in the book is that his father doesn't want his son to leave. He wants his son to move in with him, which his son isn't willing to do. And for anybody who's ever had, you know, real kind of parental conflict, like, I love you, but you drive me insane, this will resonate with you, as it did with me. And in fact, in a lot of ways, this hit me a lot harder than it did when I first read it back in my college days. I don't remember exactly when I read it, but I was probably in high school or college. So it's been decades since I read it, and some of it hit me really hard this time in a way that it didn't then, especially some of the family stuff. So as the story progresses, his father is sent out to fight as Germany marches on Poland. His father had been a reservist in the military, so he's sent out. After the first and only battle he's ever in, he gets captured by the Germans and sent to a POW camp, and we see how bad the POW camp is. Now, eventually he's freed from it, and they're marched out of the POW camp. And this turns out to actually be bad, because as miserable as the POW camp was, as prisoners of war, and at this point in history, and let me go ahead and say, we don't get a lot of dates here. His father's going on memory. So exact dates, things happen, exact years, exact frames of time. Spiegelman just goes with as his father remembers it. And doesn't try to line it up to specific landmarks in time. But at early in the war, we do know that Germany was trying very much to follow international laws of conflict. They didn't want, at least at that time, to get everybody dogpiling them and stop them before they really got going. They didn't want what happened at the end of World War II to, in fact, happen. Right. And early on, there was good reason to believe that. In fact, early on, a lot of people kind of backed off Hitler's attacks. They said, well, we were really too rough in the Treaty of Versailles. The German people really need to recapture some of what they lost. Let's just kind of let it go. He'll stop there, right? But then they realized no. he wasn't stopping. And he did bad things to Jews, but people kind of shrugged and went, eh, well, n none of us really like the Jews anyway. Who cares? I mean, anti-Semitism... This is a big thing, uh -huh. a major problem. I mean, we talk about it like the Germans were the only anti-Semites, and they weren't. Anti-Semitism was just rife across Western Europe. At, at that point in history, it could have been any country. Maybe not to that degree, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, we when we eventually talk about, say, Jack the Ripper um, uh, in Alan Moore's From Hell, we're going to talk about how anti-Semitism was a major issue uh, with the search for the Ripper and, and the Whitechapel district. And how many people were accused just because they were Jewish. Right, exactly. And the Jews weren't seen as people. They weren't seen as normal people. And again, that's what we're still seeing here. So now that they're no longer POWs, it occurs to them, okay, there are international laws that other countries will enforce about how prisoners of war are treated, but once we're just regular citizens again... We can be shot on the street and nobody will care. Oh, crap. 
And this kind of escalation of you barely get out of one thing and then it probably gets worse is something that just continues throughout all of the mouse. Um, this is not the story of a uh, masterful spy. This is not the story of somebody who created great heroic acts. This is not the story of somebody that changed the world. This is a story of somebody who was just trying to survive and just barely did. The, the, the trade line for this story, I'm guessing, is, wait, it gets worse. And it does. And it's brutal. And, I, I, again, I'm not going to go over everything because people need to read this for themselves, but it is a powerful story. And interwoven with this is about the death of his mother. Now, his mother was of a nervous temperament. She was like that even before she met his father. Uh, after she gave birth to his brother, she had a nervous breakdown and had to go to a sanitarium, and then eventually in the United States took her own life. It is a polite term in the old days for a place for people to recuperate and regain health. Uh, and sometimes their health was simply, I mean, the practice of psychology and psychiatry were very crude at the time. I mean, we're only talking about a decade or so after Freud began his major publishings. Not that I agree with all of Freud, but the 20th century was a major time of growth for psychiatry and psychology. And so the way they treated a lot of conditions was just, oh, go to this nice peaceful place and relax until you're better. Though they would have had doctors on staff and that kind of thing. Um, now, this was, I should mention, the brother uh, was born in Poland to the family. He, however, does not exist by the time of this story because he died during the war. He was in, the family was broken up. Uh, the grandparents had to be given over to the Germans at one point and were never seen again. Families spread in different directions. Um, he and his wife did, his be, did their best to stay together for a long time. Eventually, they tried to escape to Hungary and got betrayed. Betrayal is another very common theme here, along with things being taken from you. I mean, heck, at one point he has typhus and is trying to hold on to the small package of food, and people try to rip it away from him uh, in the middle of the night, thinking he's sleeping. And that's actually one of the less bad things that happens to him in the course of it. It's brutal. It is completely brutal. It is. It's sad. It's depressing. Uh, I reread it last night and was pretty depressed at the end of it. You looked pretty upset. Yeah. And uh, their, their son not Art, but his older brother, Rich, uh, they gave to somebody for safekeeping, figuring that as a small child, nobody would be able to identify him as Jewish and could kind of get away from things. And I'm not going to talk about how he died. That's something you should read in the story. It's a very powerful scene. But there's a good chance if they had kept him with them, he might have survived. It's not clear that they would have. I mean, they both ended up in Auschwitz after being captured on the train, they tried to go to Hungary, they paid people to smuggle them, and they were sold out, and the train captured. And they were in Auschwitz for however long that happened, uh, both terrified of being killed. Uh, Spiegelman's father was terrified of what might happen to Anja's wife, because she was in poor health. Fortunately, somebody else kind of looked after her. Um, but th this is just 300 pages of constant brutality. 
Um, and published it here on page 165, we see a picture of Spiegelman's uh, brother who died when he was probably about five or six and says that all he ever knew of him, because, I mean, he wasn't conceived until after the war, yeah. was this blurry photo in his parents' room. This one right here on the page. Uh, now, it says that this is also dedicated to Nadja and Dashiell. While all this is happening in the 1980s while he's writing this, um, his father passes away, and his first child, Nadja, is born. So, I mean, all this time is just of incredible change in his life. How long was he writing this for? Over a decade. Oh, oh wow. Um, so and he has different drawing styles. His very simplistic art style here is intentional. I like it. And as you read it, you'll see some pages he reproduces from another work he did where you see a much more detailed style he did there. But he was trying to keep it simple because he wanted as pure communication of the events as possible. Now, as we get into the content of what would have been Mouse 2, uh, we see the effect on the creator. He draws himself wearing a mouse mask. There are flies buzzing around him, and the floor beneath his drawing board is filled up with the bodies of dead humanoid mice. And everything is overwhelming him. Mouse 1 was incredibly successful, brought huge attention, and... It's dominating his life. And he says that his depression is linked to a lot of things, including the passing of his father. Um, that one of the reasons he became a cartoonist was his father seemed so good at so many things. He wanted to do something his father didn't do. And now he felt like, in a way, the work Mouse itself, which he did to reconnect with his father uh, and to capture the story of the Holocaust, in a way, was a weight on top of him like his father had been. And it, it's hard. It is really, really brutal and hard. And he even includes a scene where he goes to therapy, and his therapist is also an Auschwitz survivor. So this is the story, and it's real. Now, one of the things you ask in a literature class is, well, what's the theme? What's the point of this? <laughs> that's that's a tone, not a theme. Uh, I, I think one of the themes is that life can take everything away from you. And that's very hard to deal with. You know, you can gain a child. And by the way, his wife and child are very accomplished in their own right. His wife uh, was an editor of The New Yorker, I believe. Uh, his daughter's been involved in some cartoon projects, too. Uh, I believe his daughter was an editor of The Paris Review, uh, I mean, keep in mind, this was long enough ago that his daughter would be in her 30s by now. Um, but, yeah, everything can be taken from you. Just taken. And you can be left with nothing, and sometimes you have to work to survive. But it's not a theme in the sense that somebody sits down and writes a work and says, I want to create this theme. Instead, he sat down to just reflect reality, and we have to draw that out of real events. The real truth of the work here isn't the theme. It is that it's history and that it's personal experience. And that even if the father left some things out or the father misremembered some things, this is the truth as he continued to live with it as an older Jew in America in the 1970s and 80s. And it's uncomfortable. It's, it's intensely uncomfortable to read at times. Um, 
And it should be. It should fucking hurt because it's about pain. And if you don't feel some of that pain, you don't have empathy and you're not getting it. It's about institutional dehumanization. And one of the reasons that these fuckwits banning it pisses me off is because this is the sort of cautionary tale we need. When people stand up in Congress and look to make policies that are about principles instead of about people, this can be the result. The Germans, Nazis, didn't stand around and say, I look forward to torturing some Jews today. No, they didn't. They didn't say, I can't wait to put them in those gas chambers. I mean, maybe a few did. But, but for the most part, they said, we're making a better Germany for Germans. We are making sure that our children will prosper. And then this is how they saw us doing it. And when you start making laws and policies about principles, about quote-unquote purity of Western culture and other BS, well, what you're doing is saying that people don't fit your principles and so you can exclude them. People from the African diaspora, well, their skin's darker than us and they're non-inheritors of righteous Greek culture. Of course, a lot of Greeks are darker than these people are comfortable with anyway. <laughs> and that's what's really going on, of course. They're not banning this because of a couple of swear words and a squiggle as, you know, a suicide corpse. They're banning it because it makes people uncomfortable. But they should. And I know it's really heavy for kids to read, but they should read it, and they should have empathy, and they should take it for the cautionary tale it is that really horrible things happen in the real world. And they should read not just this, but they should read about more. You know, there is a failure in American culture where we kind of, in some ways, glorify horrible things. And what I'm about to say, some people may take as somehow dismissing the Holocaust. I'm not. The Holocaust was horrible on every possible level. Um, and it was oriented at Jews. There is no doubt about that. Yes, some other people got caught up in it, but Jews were very much the focus. Whoopi Goldberger said it wasn't about race, it was about man's inhumanity to man. Fuck that woman. Fuck her. She's wrong. It was about race. And it's been about race elsewhere. I mean, this is one of the things. We talk about it like, oh my God, it's so horrible. And we, have, we created a name for it, the Holocaust, because it's unique. It's never happened anywhere else. It can't happen again. And that's what we do. We elevate it. We elevate it to this almost mythic stance. It's happened in the 20th century. Not even the 20th century. In the late 20th century, Serbia, Rwanda, I'm sure plenty of others, those are just off the top of my head, have been the centers of genocides. Um, and I'm not saying that to somehow dismiss that the Holocaust wasn't important. It was incredibly important. I'm just saying it's not unique. And yes, eighth grade kids should learn this. Something that kind of makes me mad is they want to shield young kids from history just because history is brutal. That's how you get kids coming into shock when they get older and then you throw a bunch of depressing books at them and they don't understand it. Right. And they need to learn about pain. And that's how you get people ignoring history and ignoring sad things because it happened. 
And I don't think it's healthy to ignore pain. I, I think people should feel pain from art because that's where our empathy and our desire to be better people comes from. I think that's partially where American culture has failed us. Yeah. They want to hide. So I'm going to toss a mouse on the reading list. Um, you'll probably have to buy it electronically. I'll try to make sure I can find an electronic place for you to buy it. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. I'd always plan to cover a mouse one day anyway, uh, but with these fuckwits banning it, I decided to just go ahead and do it right now. And for a midweek one, I know I've been promising to do Malibu, History of Malibu, but last week I hit a point where I was just super slammed and I didn't get it done. Uh, I'm going to put it off to next week because what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight uh, in my off episode this week some other stories related to the Jewish people in World War II. So if this pissed off, if Mouse pissed them off, uh, then I'm going to give you some other stuff that piss them off too. Ooh, don't forget, it's Black History Month. It is Black History Month. I will do some stuff related to Black History. Um, as we, you know, that gets into an issue with Black Panther. I realized uh, that as I was jumping from Reginald Hudlin to Todd Nafisi Coates, there's a lot in between there. And some of it's really relevant to the story. I've decided I don't want to cover all of it, but I may summarize a few important points as we jump into Todd Nahisi Coates. Um, and Todd Nahisi Coates is not just a comic book writer. He's also a writer of nonfiction about African-American experiences and society. And so we will definitely be talking about some of that, which is really meaty as we talk about his writing on Black Panther. And I think will be, you know, a great topic for February is African-American History Month or Black History Month. So. Yeah, it's not just for Americans. There, there are black people in other countries. Well, the term black is always odd for me because what people really mean by black is people of the African diaspora. And there are people with dark skin other places who don't have any ties to Africa. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the, the, the sort of difficulty in talking about phenotypes uh, as if they exactly match everything else. And they don't always. But anyway, Black History Month, African Diaspora Month, I, whatever you want to call it, we're going to talk about it in relationship to Black Panther and the writing of Todd Nahisi Coates. Uh, which I'm really looking forward to because he's really written some wonderful things over time and it'll give us some real meat to chew into. So, I'm not giving out assignments, but if I were to give out assignments... I would ask people to read Mouse and consider a few questions. One, what is the real cathartic element that Art Spiegelman was looking to express through this work? We know that he wanted to sort of express something, get something out of him. Uh, and he makes some comments about in the book. Read those, find those, think about that. Was his father really a miser? Did his father marry his mother for money? Or was his later life miserliness an expression of an inner psychological trauma? And should this be on a reading list? And the answer is yes, by the way, for all ages. So I'm going to leave you with that. And uh, if you are a fuckwit that thinks this book should be banned from schools, fuck off and you don't need to listen to my podcast. All right. Bye, and I love you all.